Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to become more culturally competent by exploring research on the varied educational attitudes and experiences of Asian American immigrants. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Dr. Pavan Dingra. As I mentioned in the interview, most of my classroom teaching was in a school with a majority Asian-Canadian population. While I may have considered myself culturally competent at the time, I realize now that I still had, and have, a lot more work to do. Fortunately, in order to expand my understanding of the students I teach and their families, I can speak to sociologists like Pavan Dingra, who is a professor of American Studies and Faculty Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Amherst College. He is also the author of multiple award-winning books, and his research has been featured in a variety of media outlets, such as Netflix and NPR. Pavan and I spoke about the subject of his newest book, Hyper-Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough, and how teachers can apply his research in our classrooms. Good luck on your newest not-so-impossible lesson with special agent Pavan Dingra, which will begin after this quick ad break. Sunday, 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 June 27th, join us for Edupod Luza. There will be over a dozen Edupodcasters. Listen for some rhythm and rhyme. That's a poetry slam, boys and girls. Roundtable discussion. Just some teachers talking about teaching and laughing and having a good time. Role-playing games. Oh, yeah, for you nerds out there, you know you're going to like that stuff. Radio drama. Dum-dum-dum-dum. And really funny people. At least really funny looking, if nothing else. 1 to 9 on June 27th, Eastern Standard Time. We'll be live streaming. There'll be links. We'll put it on the Twitter. We'll make sure that you know where it is. Follow us at Unprocast if you're not already, because that's probably going to be the easiest way to know when it's going live. June 27th. Free up your calendar now. Thank you. To begin, I, of course, want to thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me and to talk to the listeners. And I was wondering if you didn't mind giving just a brief introduction to yourself, who you are, what you do, what your role in education is, uh, just so we know who we're talking to. No, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. I've been a professor for now almost 20 years. Uh, I've been at different universities. Uh, I focus primarily on topics of immigration and education um, and inequality. Um, and I've really, you know, been enjoying the years now that I've been with students inside and outside of the classroom, formally, informally. And I have two kids of my own uh, who are, you know, growing faster than I want them to. But it's all it's all good. Your specialty around education is looking specifically at immigrant parents and their perceptions of the education system. Is that correct? That's a large part of it, right? I've also researched and spent time with, you know, U.S.-born whites, uh, but uh, predominantly it's been on immigration. And what was it that made you want to focus on that? 
So um, there has been a lot of, I think, stereotypes around immigrants um, and their pursuits of, of education, um, both positive and negative. And I think we hear about immigrants more than we hear from immigrants in terms of their ways of approaching school for their kids. So I thought it was important to hear from their voices directly and shed light on why they may do things that other people disagree with, um, what their what teachers are like, how the actual kids themselves feel about their um, educational upbringings. And so I wanted to basically kind of air out different points of view. Awesome. So I have so many questions now, pretty much asking you to answer all of the one the questions that you've just raised. <laughs> Is there a particular question you want to start with? No, please go ahead. I'm looking forward to it. So my first question would be, are there notable differences between immigrant parents' expectations for their students and for education? Or has that just been a stereotype that we are perpetrating? Right. That's a great question. So I spent a lot of time talking with with, um, Asian immigrant parents. And one of the reasons I specify that is that they're actually a really fascinating group because in many ways, like Asian immigrants and Asian Americans are doing quite well in education. In fact, they get they get in trouble sometimes for doing well in education. That is to say that they are sometimes called tiger parents and focusing on education too much. And I want to kind of understand, well, what, what's behind that? Is that actually true? And to your question, right, do they focus on education differently? And sometimes they do, right? So a lot of the immigrants that come have been able to make it to the U.S. because of their high achievements in education before they arrived. In fact, it's their educational achievements back in their home country that gave them the opportunity to move to the U.S. in the first place. So like a lot of parents, right, if you were able to get ahead because of something that you focused on and you were taught by your parents, then it's natural to reproduce that in some ways for your own children. And that becomes something that we see. And so a lot of immigrants who have made it to the U.S. because of educational accomplishments will really be strong in terms of their expectations for education for their kids. Uh, so you see somewhat of a difference there. But having said that, right, even immigrants who come with relatively low education levels still want their kids to take advantage of the U.S. education system, so they focus on education a lot. Um, and so it becomes something that is somewhat throughout immigrant communities. In fact, one study I read showed that the children of immigrants oftentimes do quite well in education relative to the immigrants themselves or even relative to the kids of those people who um, – those kids. So it's kind of a unique situation here where the kids of immigrants really do focus on education to a significant degree. What is your sense of how the, the students feel about that pressure that they might be getting from their parents – From my own experience, when I was in British Columbia, I was teaching at a school that was predominantly first-generation immigrants from China and was in a a very wealthy area. So these were very, I guess you could say, successful immigrants. And there definitely was a lot of pressure on the students, but the students also had an incredible drive and respect for education, respect for their teachers. And again, of course, this is all generalization. But one of the things that always stuck out for me was that my students would talk about, you know, grades and they would always 
tease me and they're like, you're not going to give me a B, Ms. Levin. And, I was, and I'd be like, well, maybe I will. And like, a B is not bad. That's still above average. And they'd be like, no, Ms. Levin, you know what we call a B at home? And I was like, what? An Asian <laughs> fail. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually really funny that you bring that up. And it resonates a lot with a lot of families that I met and the teachers that I spoke with. Uh, teachers I, I met with, you know, a lot of them would bring up the exact same thing. You know, the B is the Asian F and that's too much stress and there's burnout and there's anxiety. And there are a lot of concerns around this um, among educators, mental health experts, school principals, teachers, you, you name it, college admissions counselors that I talked to. And the parents themselves who are putting pressure on their kids academically, they're not naive to those concerns. And so they kept stressing how they try to balance the academic expectations they had on their kids, you know, to get a not don't get a B kind of, you know, pressure with, you know, the how much downtime the kids had, how much free time. But there was something about doing well in education that really mattered to the families and that caused anxiety for the kids. Because the parents when they like these immigrant parents, they would say, unless you do well in education, there really are no opportunities for you back where we came from. I remember some parents I I would speak to said if you don't do well in school, you're relegated to a life of like virtual nothingness. As I say, like there, there's nothing available for you otherwise. And parents have that anxiety in them. And so they think, well, if our kids don't outcompete other kids in the US and they're at least in their classrooms, then they may not have opportunities down the road for college or the like, or internships or jobs, whatever it might be. So the parents are, are very worried, they're very fearful of what will become of their kids unless they do well in education. So that what that translates into is in some ways an overemphasis on a great grade for their kids. And the children are the ones you already alluded to, right, are the ones who kind of can bear the brunt of this. And so in talking with parents, I'm always emphasizing to them, right, that you know there's, it's more kind of open system here in the U.S. than you might be used to. There's a lot more opportunities, you know, much more breadth of opportunities than you might be used to. And some parents get that, but they still are kind of driven by this sense of, well, I know it worked for us growing up, and I want to make sure my kids get that same thing, and that leads to the pressures that we're talking about. I found it interesting because my educational system, like we had a a complete rewriting of our curriculum, and it was all about really getting away from standardization, memorization, Uh, really focusing in on skills as well as creativity of thought and making connections. And I, I would always start my meet the teacher with, you know, going through what we would be learning and my grading process. And I would talk about how, you know, I, I didn't focus exclusively on content. In fact, that was just a fourth of what their grade would be. And they could be excellent content memorizers. And if they weren't able to show critical and creative thought and they weren't good at expressing themselves orally or in writing, then they wouldn't do well in the class. And I would have mixed results. Some people would be very concerned about that. And then some parents, you know, would come to me and be like, you know, I didn't learn like this, but I think this is excellent. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, to my kid doing this. I'm worried that I won't be able to help them as much as I could, but, you know, I, I see what you're doing and I, I think it's great. And I think 
my expectation going into some of those conversations at first was, oh, I'm going to meet so much resistance. But I certainly, I think once I explained my pedagogical philosophies, didn't get the kind of resistance that I would have assumed that I got. No, I think that makes a lot of sense what you're saying, both in terms of what you expected to find and what you what actually happened. And it's not surprising that there was some resistance, right? There was some concern among some parents that is this, you know, if nothing else, this is just very unfamiliar to us, right? It's not so much that it's wrong, but it's just so out of our expectation or out of our our familiarity um, that we're just nervous around it. But I think parents realize, especially as they talk to other parents who have been here longer, that there's a lot to be gained from focusing on like, you know, process, on critical thinking, on presentation skills. I talked to parents who had their kids in after-school math centers or in academic competitions. And even as they had their kids in these kind of extra academic spheres, they would question the value of what they were doing. They would say, I'm not sure we're actually helping our kids by having them in these spaces because are they really building up their social skills? Are they building up their creativity? Or are we just creating more competitive, more anxious and memorized uh, kind of memorized focused kind of kids. So even parents who do these activities that kind of seem contradictory to what your goals were themselves can understand there's a real value to what you're talking about. And so I'm glad to hear that most parents got on board with this. I'm really glad to hear, obviously, that, that was your approach to it. One thing, though, that I found in talking with all these families is that even as they can appreciate this approach that you're talking about, right, which is I think a growing trend in a, in a positive direction, the, after a while the parents start to worry about, well, how much is my kid learning relative to the other kids in the classroom? How much is my kid learning relative to their cousins back in our homeland? And then they start thinking, well, maybe I can supplement with some, uh, some out-of-school academic opportunities, whether they be just by the parents themselves, something they get online, or something more formal. And that's, I think, something that adds to the stress even as parents can appreciate why you're teaching the way that you are and why so many teachers are approaching it the way that they do. I, I think, too, you mentioned that idea of the supplementation, and that in many ways ended up changing my approach in the classroom as well. I think often teachers and parents feel like we're in isolation, but I think it, it very much is, is a dance, especially in the secondary level when we don't have as much communication back and forth. But I would, you know, see my kids getting very overwhelmed, overbooked, and so my homework would go down. Sometimes my homework was, you know, you have to find 20 minutes in your day over the next three days to just be out in nature. You can do whatever you want there, but that's your homework. And I imagine that as I was trying to accommodate for the stress I was seeing, parents are then going, what? My kid has to spend 20 minutes in nature. I better get them in another, you know, after school program to make up for this flaky teacher. Right. I think that's actually something that you, first of all, your, your instinct to focus on you know, being, in the out, being outdoors, take it easy, reflect, right? Take time to reflect and, and be a real person is really admirable. But I do think that, right, I think it can lead some parents to question the rigor, and not in a very one-dimensional way, I mean by rigor, of the curriculum. I think going back to your earlier question around assessment, a lot of parents are used to having their kids be assessed 
not just relative to some standard, but also relative to other students in the classroom. How do I know how well my student, my kid is doing was what I would often hear. In fact, some states, a lot of states have their, their um, first statewide assessments at third grade. And that seems really early to a lot of parents, but to the parents, some parents I spoke with, that felt late. Like, how do I, I get to wait till third grade to get a sense of how well my son is or child, my daughter is doing. And so parents wouldn't refer to the schools as flaky. In fact, many of the parents I spoke to thought their schools were very good, but still not giving adequate assessments and so that they had to take it into their own hands. And I think that's one thing that we're seeing is that as school districts effectively push back on too much homework, come up with you know ways of limiting assignments over breaks and everything else, parents can appreciate where that's coming from, but not necessarily fully buy in, right? I think the buy-in from the parents is hard to accomplish, especially when they're sort of so fearful that unless we do this extra education, our kids are going to be behind. As a teacher, like I, I think I did, I was doing some things well to communicate with parents, but I definitely know that there was gaps. And sometimes I would, I think, let my own cultural bias show. Like I did have parents that would often ask me how their kid was in relation to other students in the class. And that would always really get my back up, Yeah, you know, and I, I think I would get a little snippy, like, you know, I'm grading based on standards and we can't compare children and no, 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 no. Like what are, what are things that I and other teachers who perhaps haven't come from that cultural background or haven't felt that anxiety, what can we do to both make parents feel better about the education that they're getting, lessen their anxiety, as well as keep them informed in a way that they feel like they need to be informed to feel good about that schooling? That's an excellent question. And I think you're absolutely right that that's the kind of thing that teachers hear a lot. And they, you know, and it is an uncomfortable question because it's actually not a question that should be asked. So, but at the same time, you can't just tell parents, right? Oh, that's just, don't worry about that. Because then that will, that will come across as if, you know, the, you, the teacher and the parent just can't communicate. And that's just going to close off opportunities for further discussion and further partnership. So like you're, like, you're, like you're saying, right, we have to find a way to connect with where the parent's coming from while not necessarily giving them the exact answer they're looking for. And so the way to do that is to recognize that, you know, I understand that, you know, many times in educational settings, there is a clear ranking, um, and that's the best way to know how far your child is progressing. But in, so kind of understand where they're coming from and realize this, this, what you're saying can make sense in certain circumstances. But in this circumstance, in our school, that's not how it works. In fact, that wouldn't be helpful to you to know how they're doing compared to someone else because they're not going to get advanced into the next grade based on that. They're going to get advanced into the next grade based on their matching to the standards. In other words, if par- what parents want to know is really less how much their child is beating out uh, or losing, you know, quote unquote, relative to someone else, they want to know, is my child on the pathway for, you know, doing well next year and the year after that and the year after that? What's my child's trajectory down the road? That's really what they want to know. And, and one way of assessing that to the, in their minds is, well, am I the best in the class? Am I beating everyone else? But if you can speak to what the child's kind of next year's or longer term or medium term opportunities are, given where, how, where they are relative to the standards, 
that actually can speak to a lot of parents' concerns without having to get into this competitive assessment between students, which which we don't want parents to buy into. And so we've been talking a lot about, I think, the stereotype of the Asian immigrant student who is really driven, who is academically very strong. And I think sometimes we forget that all kids are on a spectrum and that there are going to be kids that aren't driven and that aren't strong academically. And even if they are getting a lot of pressure from home, that various circumstances, whether it be their own learning disabilities or anything else happening in their life is going to make it difficult for them to succeed in our narrow definition of academic success. I was wondering if you could maybe talk to attitudes about that and approaches from teacher to parent when we're talking about students that are struggling, uh, but we want to have compassion for the kids and make the, the parents understand what's happening. I'm really glad you brought that up. And something I wanted to, to speak to is that you know, there's this concept called stereotype promise, which is a notion, which is the converse of this more popular concept called stereotype threat. Um, but stereotype promise is the idea that you know we see a group, let's say Asian Americans, who we think are going to be high achieving, and then we treat them in that way. Uh, for instance, giving them you know the benefit of the doubt on how well they do on a test, or giving them more time to complete something because we know, we know they're going to do a great job, so they need more time. That's fine, as opposed to making sure they get it at the exact moment that it's due, or, or just the f- simple comments we give students about you know. If they get an 85 on a test, say, oh, I'm sure you'll do better next time. But another student will say, you know, great job. That was really good for you. In other words, if we treat students with with the expectation they're going to do really well, then that kind of can sometimes lead them to do well. But the point is that can also create an extra set of stress and undue unrealistic expectations on students, which happens for Asian Americans because, again, they're oftentimes seen as, you know, high achieving but those students who aren't high achieving for whatever reason, right, that creates an extra burden on them, an extra sense of stress. And then one of the results is they can kind of tune out from education generally. They can feel, they can say like, you know what, I'm not living up with the expectations of the people in, um, of other Asian Americans. I'm not living up with the expectations of my teachers. And they will even pull more back from education than other students in this, would, other, would, would with the same kind of grades uh, or feedback that they're getting. And so one of the things to be really aware of, right, is kind of getting to realize, you know, this is kind of a cliche, but thinking about each student as an individual and approaching them as if they're not defined by some kind of cultural background or cultural upbringing. And actually something to even for students who are kind of, you know, stereotypically kind of going through education, even then I, I've seen a lot of teachers who really treat those families as some kind of problematic parents, right? Oh, your parents must push you too hard. You must be, you know, really anxious at home. Uh, you know, don't worry about grades. And I've, I know, I've seen you know, teachers and I've heard from teachers, they tell a lot of Asian American students that. But one of the problems with that, even if it's coming from a very good place, right, because the teachers are concerned about the well-being of the children, is that it creates this, like, division between the parents and the school. And it doesn't really help the children understand how to balance out different kinds of expectations. 
And so I think in general, right, whether it's children who are fitting a stereotype or don't fit a stereotype, is to assure teachers to not carry so many assumptions around the cultural backgrounds of the parents because it can lead to unfortunate comments that, again, are very well-meaning but can create distance from the student to the school. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense because if we're constantly giving messaging that is incorrect, you know, absolute contradiction to what they're getting at home, that creates such cognitive dissonance for the students and they probably feel a a tear in their their loyalty because they're loyal to their parents, but they also, you know, hopefully feel safe and feel good about school. Yeah. Right, exactly. I talked to students who the concern around stress wasn't the parental pressure to, you know, always get the A versus the, you know, the Asian F, but it was the disconnect between what was applauded uh, and valued in the home compared to what was applauded and valued in the school. And so, for instance, students I spoke to would, would hide how much academic achievement they were doing outside of school, not just from fellow students, but even sometimes from teachers. And that was kind of quite sad to hear that they didn't like, you know, feel like they could be proud of their achievements, especially their academic achievements, and of all places, the school, right, which should be where you should be most proud. And so there is a disconnect that the students bear the brunt of, a sense of stigma, um, is what I kind of gathered as I talked to a lot of youth around their um, academic interests and achievements. And so it's less in some ways the parental pressure, though that, does, that, that can be a problem, no question. But as you already alluded to, it can be the disconnect that creates a sense of stress, right, between what's valued in one place and what's valued or at least acknowledged positively in another place. I know that there's been large movements, A, towards, you know, having culturally competent teachers and and training them and in the variety of different cultural understandings around education as well as bringing students' own lived experiences and their values. And like, I I know for me, something in teaching history, especially to a largely Asian population about bringing in connections to their homeland and historical events that paralleled or even focusing in on an example and, you know, studying it from that perspective what are some ways that we can lessen that disconnect in our schools? That's a really great question and really thoughtful question. And I think that it, it comes down to a couple of things. One is the students themselves who are in the classroom may not know that much about you know, the history or culture of their ancestry, right? So uh, they may be learning about Chinese history alongside their non-Chinese American students for the first time because their parents never really sat them down and explained to them, you know, what this, this dynasty, dynasty was or what happened during this era. And I think that they can feel ashamed of what they don't know, um, especially if they become seen as representations of that heritage, that culture. And so in some ways, I think it's fair for teachers not to expect the students to be um, that knowledgeable about what they're learning, even if they seem to be the ones who, who should be the ones who should be most, most knowledgeable. At the same time, right, uh, there is a certain kind of cultural trends that teachers and should be aware of. And this is where I think actually 
we really need to be making make sure not as teachers, but our you know, our college our um, school counselors are well trained in different cultural backgrounds. They are the first, I think, most important lines of communication in this way. Well, they understand that you know there can be different kinds of expectations around academics, um, extracurriculars, and organized time can mean something more important in some cultures or another. For the lack of parental involvement uh, in school may not be a sign of lack of parental interest, interest, but it's a sense that it's actually in some cultures considered rude to be too involved in the school because then it seems as if the parent is trying to overtake the, the teacher, which is what they want to avoid coming across as. So there's a lot of possible misunderstandings there. Um, and so I think that you know it's hard to ask teachers to be totally trained in everything else. But so if nothing else, our, guy, our school counselors should be well-versed in the kind of cultural norms of the uh, schools in the district. I interviewed recently Mandy Yom uh, in an episode about ELL kindergarten. And so she does this, um, it's a, a class of kindergartners and then they go into grade one as well. And they're just students that are English language learners. And she herself is a first-generation immigrant. And the entire time she was talking, I kept on, you know, every strategy that she was talking about, I was like, that never would have occurred to me. Oh, my God. Like, oh, like, you know, and there's obviously a little bit of shame of like, oh, God, how have I been failing my students? But just that perspective of herself knowing what her own parents would have been comfortable with, not comfortable with, do you think that one of the solutions could be making sure that we are making teaching a viable and a positive career choice for first-generation immigrants just because we need their perspective as much as we need everybody else's? I think that's a wonderful um, kind of step to take, which is to make the school itself, uh, including, of course, teaching, like a space where you know, these immigrants feel like, oh, yeah, this is a space where I belong, right? Like when you talk to a lot of parents, even well-educated parents, parents who are, you know, work among, you know, many different diverse people, many Americans, they can think that the school is a space that kind of belongs to other members of their community and that they just attend, right? Um, and that happens in different ways, right? If there's a tension in the, among, in the community, who does the school board tend to listen to? Right? That can be a real challenge in certain areas. And so parents, you know, immigrant parents may actually have valid reasons for thinking that our school doesn't really, we don't really fully belong there, even if we're there in large numbers, even if we're doing fine academically. So part of it is what you're saying, right? Making teaching as a profession something that is a space where many different kinds of people feel welcome to pursue. And they see themselves and their teachers are inspired by their teachers, but also it's, a, it's making the school more generally a space where everyone feels an equal belonging. And how do you do that? You know, one way is kind of through the symbolic way, which is to, uh, you know, encourage uh, parents to share their culture in different moments, uh, whether it be, you know, multicultural nights and potlucks, all that kind of, you know, those, those important but somewhat cute <laughs> efforts. Uh, but then more importantly, more significantly, right, is to make sure that all kinds of parents are being asked to run for the school board. All kinds of there's different kinds of outreach to parents to say, okay, how about we just target this one ethnic group who, who's not we don't see much of, but we have a number of students involved in our school. Let's target them and have a special meeting just for them, 
so that they know we're actually just we really want to hear what you have to say around you know upcoming plans for the next year programming homework policies whatever it might be and going out and basically putting in the extra effort because a lot of these communities just because of what it feels like to be an immigrant in this country or or maybe becoming uh, specific the school has been doing have not felt that they really belong at the school even as again they're, they're very committed to it and their kids are, are active you know in participation the parents don't feel it's their kind of space and so a lot of when, when that parents don't feel that way and most of them don't it then creates the problems that we're talking about they don't feel they can talk to the teachers about their kids progress they feel more compelled to take it into their own hands and in person seek extra education on the side and then the kids are the ones as we already alluded to who can feel kind of caught in the middle between those so the more that schools can make themselves feeling and being open to engaging with others right that you know that's we can't ask schools to do everything but it's something it's a clear step that can be meaningful in the short term and hopefully long term. If you had one thing you could say to a teacher, a student, and a parent, like what what would those things be? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So I would say to the teachers and the parents that there really needs to be more communication across each other. And I, I was really surprised after I spoke to so many teachers and parents, that they don't really talk that much to each other. And of course, there's the parent-teacher conference, um, but that really becomes more about like, you know, how's my kid, how's a student doing? But it's less about what do I want out of my kid's education? What do I want out of my student's education? And I think what I'm, so the point I'm getting at is that we're thinking about the children in two ways. One is they're a student, which the teacher knows the most about, and one is they're a kid, and a family member, which the parent knows much knows the most about. And we need to be connecting these two parts of the person, right? The student part and like the child or and part. And that those two come together when the parents and the teachers make an effort to explain to each other what they want out of their kids' time here, what they want out of their kids' growth in general. And I don't see much of that. I see more about here's, you know, kind of how's a student doing. You know, is they, are they getting this kind of grade? Are they this or that? You know, are they behaving okay? And it's and well, it's important. I, as a parent, I, you know, as a teacher, I do those. I think what what those spaces are missed opportunities where parents and teachers can really be opening up about what their values are, what their goals are, what their anxieties are, and that would go a long way to helping the child feel like they belong, and the parents feel like they belong, and the teachers feel like. Okay, these are families I really I better understand and even can relate to in ways that otherwise wouldn't. What my first thought is, you know, at the beginning of the year, I send something home with students to for themselves to reflect on with a lot of those questions. What are my goals? What is important to me? What are things that I'm good at? What are things that I struggle with? All that. Like, would sending something home for parents, ideally in a variety of languages as well, be a good stepping stone, just asking them those questions that you just outlined? I think that's a great first step. Yeah, I really do. And it's something as, as you know, practical as that can be, if nothing else, an opportunity to refer back to when there is that parent-teacher conference, right? Like, so you wrote this down, you know, a few months ago about what your goals were. Do you want to elaborate on this? And then 
and we the we the teachers can explain how we are approaching this and what we how we think about this same issue and that would be a great opening up opportunity for parents to feel like the teacher does kind of care what i'm saying and the teacher to kind of reflect upon what the um what the parents are bringing to the table and then then the teacher hopefully the parents can learn from us the teachers about you know oh here's why they do things this way in response to my question or concern and that would go a long way and then a message to the students hang in there <laughs> yeah the kind of classic cliche but it's so true i mean you also have to understand that if they're, if students are getting competing messages or at least they feel they're getting competing messages you know just understand that you will find there's more in common between the families and the students and the teachers and the administrators than they may feel in the moment right everyone has their best interest at heart and and if they are students are feeling anxious or they're feeling like they're not performing well enough, if they feel they can just share that with someone, share that with a teacher, share that with a counselor, share that with the random person somewhere in the school or in the community or at home, right? They'd be, I think they'd be hopefully surprised by how bad, how much uh, cathartic that feels for them in the moment, which is very important, but also how much people are willing to listen, right? So oftentimes students don't think they're being listened to. That's the main concern, right? They're always feeling they're responding. They're not in charge. And if people will just listen, if they feel people are listening to them, especially when they're opening up about something important about themselves, then that can make them hopefully feel like, yeah, you know what? I am more in charge of my academic and in school life than I otherwise may have felt before. Maybe things can change in ways that I think are meaningful. And so it's not just about hanging in there, even though that's obviously critical. It's about them feeling that they actually have a voice and are active, not just passive, as they kind of mature through the years. So I know for me, I'm doing a lot of reflection as we're talking, and I have a lot of ideas and a lot of questions still for teachers that may have been listening and going along the same journey as I am. Where would you recommend that we go next to further our connection to our immigrant families? Oh, well, I think the most helpful piece of advice is to not be afraid to make ourselves vulnerable to people we don't know extremely well. That is to say, put ourselves in spaces that we may not be comfortable in and look for insight and advice and from those people and, and being open to saying, can I ask some questions here? Can you educate me if there's something, if there's something specific on your mind? Um, so that happens like you know, with your neighbors. It happens with the parents who come into the school. Uh, it happens just through, you know, if nothing else, reading authors who's uh, of me- of people who you normally would not meet. So you get other people's perspectives, and that's a great place to start. And not feel that you're too late to the game. Not feel that you don't have a right to ask questions. Uh, but really put ourselves first and foremost in a listening perspective not in a discussion perspective right away, definitely not an argumentative perspective, but we have to start by listening. And I don't mean that in a trite way. I mean that you listen to actual people you may know around concerns that are on your mind 
to get informed and then being able to take the next step from there. But um, that would be my practical advice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for enlightening me today. I really appreciate the the research that you're doing and the activism that you're doing and the education that you're doing. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for this. And, the, and this conversation was really thoughtful and enlightening. I appreciate it. episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. 